Hey everyone, it's Sage, the producer of Grow For Good here. Just hopping on as a quick note up top about our guest. Legislator Lafazan is speaking solely on his behalf and not on behalf of Northwell or the Nassau County Legislature. Enjoy the episode. Because a 12-year-old girl felt that she was comfortable to reach out to her legislator and felt that her legislator would reach back out to her, we wrote a bill together. That's what we're doing, in, and that's what we're doing in government. But again, uh, you, know, you know, that happens when, when you think outside the box and you say, I want to solicit ideas from everybody. It's an age-old question. Can you do well by doing good? Welcome to the Grow for Good podcast, where we speak with leaders who strive to make a positive impact on the world. Here's the host of the Grow for Good podcast, Jed Morey. It's our first episode back from a quick break to kick off season two of Grow for Good. And what a better way to begin than with a burst of inspiring energy from a young politician, executive, and serial pursuer of advanced degrees. We returned inward to our home region to kick off the season because we thought it would be interesting to hear what the future sounds like. It sounds a lot like a young man named Josh Lafazan. We originally reached out to Josh to talk about his role in the Corporate Social Responsibility Department of Northwell Health, the largest private employer in New York State. Invariably, our conversation broadened to include his other full-time job as a local legislator. The pursuit of his doctoral degree from UPenn, his new podcast, Java with Josh, created to inspire young people to greatness, and his volunteer efforts to help people battle hunger, addiction, and supporting homeless veterans. Now, this isn't a commercial for Josh. We're still as committed as ever to highlighting for-profit companies that do good things in the world and create inspiring models for change. But it became evident throughout our conversation that beyond just the incredible work that Josh does with Northwell Health, he himself is a vision of what our future can and will hopefully hold. An undergraduate degree from Cornell, master's from Harvard, and doctorate in the making from UPenn, Josh is an indefatigable learner. And he credits the leadership team at Northwell Health for creating an example for all companies to follow, regardless of industry. I hope you enjoy the discussion with Josh as much as we did. And while we want you to take it all in because of the valuable information alone, you'll be doing yourself a favor by remembering the name Josh Lafazan. No matter where you are in the country, I have a feeling you're going to be hearing his name a lot. Welcome back to the Grow for Good podcast. I'm Jed Morey, CEO of Morey Creative Studios, executive producer of Newsbeat, and host of Grow for Good. And I'm very pumped for this conversation. Josh is not only a good friend, but he is truly an iconic political figure in our neck of the woods and a ridiculously accomplished individual on many fronts, as you heard in our introduction. And we're speaking with him today about his role as corporate social responsibility consultant for Northwell Health, the largest private employer in New York State. But we have so many fascinating tributaries to touch on that I can't wait to get started. And I know for sure that you are going to fall in love with him because everybody does. It's impossible not to. So Josh, my man, thank you for joining us on Grow for Good. Well, thank you for that introduction. I didn't know my mom wrote the introduction that you actually read. I, I, I did not know that that, that happened. So I, I appreciate that. She actually just left. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, this show actually has the distinction of being the first in-studio, in-person interview that we've been able to do for many, 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 many months. So I appreciate you coming down. I'm honored to be here. Let's talk about Northwell Health for a moment. It is a massive organization with some 72,000 employees throughout New York State. So I'm curious about within the organization, with whom do you most often collaborate in terms of like divisions? Sure. So, you know, I ran for legislature. I said, I'm going to be a full-time legislator in my first term. 
learn the job. And, and there's a language of government that many people don't understand. You know, it's it's tough to you know read municipal code. It's tough to write a bill. It's tough to allocate funds in a budget. So uh, I served full time and I was reelected. And I said, now I want to get some private sector experience because I think people in government, especially when you're levying taxes and when you're working with the private sector, think, you know, controversial idea, you should have some private sector experience. Uh, so I decided to to work and I said, who am I going to work for? And a lot of my friends after college went to Wall Street and were doing really well. Uh, and to me, I couldn't get up in the morning and just, as I say, go make rich people more money. I, I just couldn't do it. I wanted, as the show talks about, I wanted to do good uh, because that's what fuels me. And, that, and that's, that's what gets me up in the morning. So I looked around and I said, if I'm going to be a legislator on Long Island, you know, Northwell is Long Island. You know, Northwell is, you know, not only the largest private employer, but uh, they, they are defining healthcare in our communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did some research and I was so proud. So Jordana Zangwill is my boss. She leads corporate social responsibility efforts, uh, took a chance on me along with Jeff Crowd and uh, Joe Mascola, Maxine Carrington. So many people at Northwell said, um, Josh, we want to take a chance on you. I just celebrated my one-year anniversary, and it has been the greatest experience of my life to work for such an amazing organization. So corporate responsibility actually covers, uh, could potentially cover a lot of different bases. Mm -hmm. And with such a big organization, the departments within, you must touch on multiple departments. Oh, so much. So so if I'm a program manager within the CSR function, within human resources, so you work all over with human resources, patient experience, employee experience. Uh, but then you work with corporate communications because, you know, corporate social responsibility also entails not only how we communicate to the public, but how we communicate internally with our own employees. We're working with budget and finance to make sure that, uh, you know, do we have enough money uh, to, to not only spearhead our initiatives, but but do them to the fullest, uh, you know, that we need to. Uh, you know, we, we work with, with so many different functions. And that's really been the best part of the job for me. Uh, is as, as, as a new employee at Northwell, uh, my job was to get to know everyone. And, and that was exhilarating to get to, I mean, the level of competence within senior management at Northwell is, is astounding. But not just competence, it's, it's compassion. These are people who, who really care. And so I, I talk about every new hire goes through what's called beginnings at Northwell. And they talk about the culture of care, whether literally you're parking cars as a member of the valet or whether you're a senior executive, everyone goes through beginnings together. And that culture of care, it sets the tone on your first day of work that, that we are not just a company who is going to deliver exceptional health care. We're a company who cares about not just the public, but our own employees. And uh, ever since that first day, it just set the tone for me. So we've already spoken with a number of really incredible companies, whether it's mm-hmm. uh, actually somebody you know here, Charles Vigliotti from yep. American Organic Energy and Long Island Compost, to David Heath from Bombas Socks. Mm-hmm. People doing really extraordinary things. So the idea of corporate social responsibility means something different to each organization. But how can you best put it into terms? What does CSR mean for the folks at Northwell? Sure. So how I define it is, you know, how can we as, as you know, again, I'm not just the largest private employer, but as a major stakeholder in our communities, how can we invest in the communities and serve, you know, we serve and work with those stakeholders in the communities we serve? How can we best take care of the environment and, and be sustainable as an organization? And how can we best enact policies uh, to take care of our employees? So to me, I look at it as threefold because you can define CSR from a number of different ways. But to me, uh, that's what gets me excited every day. How can we, as a 26-year-old, make sure that when I'm 76 and I have grandchildren, that we can breathe clean air and drink clean water? And, and how are we controlling? to that? How can we make sure that Northwell continues to be what I believe to be the greatest place to work anywhere in the country and, and take care of our employees? Uh, and of course, how can we invest in the communities we serve? Because we, you know, we, we have a motivation to take care of the communities we, we, we serve. Uh, so how can we work with stakeholders on the ground? How can we invest in those communities and give back? 
uh, and it's freaking awesome, <laughs> if, I, if I can put it lightly. <laughs> no, so if you can uh, actually go a little bit deeper into one aspect that you talked about, is, which is sustainability, because Northwell is very explicit and transparent about their CSR efforts, and sustainability seems to be truly central to them, from green facilities, reducing energy and water usage, to drug take-back days. They seem to be very aggressive in this area. What kind of team internally and what kind of resources do they commit to that? And how would you characterize their support of sustainability? Sure. So I have to talk to my boss because I don't know if I can come full out and, and, and talk about the goals we're setting, but we're transparent in terms of, you know, you know, we have made CSR a priority within our organization, but I can, I can talk, you know, in generics in terms of, you know, are, you know, are we being mindful of, of waste from, from hospitals and of systems? And of course the answer is yes. Are we being mindful of the fact that we have to protect our waterways? Yes. Are we, are we investing uh, in new facilities that are leads? certified? Uh, are we investing in renewable energies in those facilities? And, and the answer is yes, across the board. Uh, and it's, it starts at the top. You know, Michael Dowling is somebody I, I idolize. I mean, this, this is a hero uh, and, and, and somebody who has, has shown all New Yorkers and all Americans uh, how to lead during a crisis. Uh, and it starts at the top because, you know, and, and I'm going to transition a little bit into government. Uh, the fact that in 2020, uh, when I say climate change is real, some people you know, within my district and within the country would disagree with that statement. That statement is real at Northwell, and that makes all the difference. Hmm. Uh, that's interesting because we have, we have a few people that have been on the podcast that are very much in sustainability, or they started their companies with a sustainable mission in mind, and the product followed. And it seems to me that in healthcare, when you're building such big facilities and such a huge institution, your carbon footprint is going to be enormous. But everything that I've read and obviously everything that you're saying right now is it starts with that awareness, acceptance and awareness. This is a problem. This is our reality. And now let's put in measures to fix it. And and it trickles down. So 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 again, you know, I'm 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 here on the show speaking as an individual. I don't you know I don't, I don't ever pretend to speak on behalf of Northwell, but uh, I'm proud to be a member of the Northwell family, and and I feel that I fit in because my colleagues feel the same way I do. You know, so there are these employee groups. So there's the Greenberg. You know, it's an employee you know resource group, an entire group of of Northwell employees who volunteer their time to push forward green efforts from anything from getting rid of plastic bottles to using reusable bottles, all the way to looking at our carbon footprint. It is within the lifeblood of the organization to say, what can we do to make the world a better place through this organization? That doesn't happen everywhere. Uh, so I'm, I'm just, I'm proud to be a member of the family. I really am. At some point, probably a little later in the discussion, we're going to lean more into uh, your political career before we leave Northwell and healthcare. You know, as we discussed before the show, Grow for Good centers squarely on corporate social responsibility. And, and there's a, a growing awareness of CSR as a concept and myriad ways to, to apply it. What's fascinating to me about healthcare is that at its core, there's a natural friction between healthcare as an operational mandate and the business of healthcare as a profitable enterprise. So can you talk about how healthcare systems maintain the balance between working to improve outcomes for patients? and provide preventive care and maintenance to reduce illness? Because it, it's the only for-profit model I can think of that is actually incentivized against its own profit motives. Well, you know, and, and again, speaking as an individual, just, just through observation, it's, it's why I chose Northwell, because they are so compassionate about the people they serve. And, and again, at that beginnings on that first day, they say, we're here for that patient at the bedside. That's why we're here. And everything we do at Northwell and every, you know, everything from literally cafeteria staff to that member of the valet, all the way to senior staff is all about taking care of that patient at the bedside. So number one, it's, it's that culture of care that extends to the patient that really is moving. But 
they invest heavily, you know, in their communities and, and, and they believe in prevention. And as a legislator, you know, I know prevention works because because the science is there. So, again, if we're investing in healthy foods in our community, will that prevent illness? Uh, you know, if we're working with nonprofit partners on the ground to teach about exercise and physical fitness, uh, you know, will that keep our communities healthy? If our air is clean and if our water is clean uh, and if our communities are clean, will that prevent illness? So, Northwell, again, just from observation, because, uh, you know, I always have to be transparent. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll never pretend to speak on behalf of anybody but myself. As an observer for the past year, they're the real deal. And they really go above and beyond to take care of the communities they serve, which tells me that they say we're going to be around for a long time. Uh, and, and a healthy Long Island means a healthy Northwell. So speaking from your perspective as a legislator mm-hmm. and someone who is <laughs> omnipresent, I'll call it, in sure. the community, how do you actively engage with the corporate community at large and organizations like Northwell to promote a wider vision of community engagement? Sure. So, you know, the beauty as, as a legislator is, you know, I, I can wake up and, and, and I can move my initiatives forward. I, I use the term hustle and I don't use it lightly. I say that I out hustle my colleagues uh, because I'm out there every day saying, what can we do to make this community a better place? Uh, and if we help one person, that's enough for me. Uh, so, for example, whether it was approaching CVS and saying, can we do free flu shots? Because as we know, especially in the age of COVID, flu is, is going to be lethal this season. And can we protect our seniors? So we did free flu shots through CVS. We've done, uh, you know, through the Coach Meeting House over in Oyster Bay and my buddy Russ Lundstrom, we did, uh, you know, the puppuccinos at Starbucks where they give you whipped cream. Uh, we called them the legislator. And if you drove by and bought a legislator, which is a cup of whipped cream for your dog, he donated and matched to an, to, uh, to an animal hospital to feed dogs who were hungry during COVID. It's just being creative in terms of approaching the private sector and saying, where can our vision align? Because there has to be a profit motive for these companies who are giving back. And whether it's increasing awareness for these companies and whether it's driving new customers in their doors, it's, at the end of the day, public-private partnerships work. It just takes somebody with hustle and with creativity to say, how can we do it? And you know, I'll, I'll continue to talk about the fact that I love doing fundraisers with the Oyster Bay Brewery. And, and I've never drank a beer in my entire life. But if the fact that we're going to give back to the community and people will see the Oyster Bay Brewery is a gem and will drive people in the door, that's a motivation for both of us, but, but it's helping people. Is that Gabe? Over at Oyster yeah, Bay? Yeah, yeah, Gabe and, and, and Ryan. Right. Uh, but, but, you know, but uh, again, the irony that you can step outside your, not only your comfort zone, but you could step outside your own individual preferences to say, hey, let me approach every type of business in my community and see how we can partner to give back. That is 21st century thinking, and that's where government has lagged. So, side note, our producer Sage is here, mm-hmm. and uh, we had a parking lot conversation the other day where we would match Sage's understanding and wisdom about craft beer with just about anybody in the country. She knows more about the the smallest breweries that you've ever seen. Oyster Bay happens to be a great brewery. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of Garvey's because that's where I live as well. Mm-hmm. But the explosion of craft beer has been amazing. And we interviewed a guy named uh, Marcus Baskerville from Weathered Souls Brewery in uh, Texas. He put out a special formula for a brew called Black is Beautiful. It's a stout. And he decided to just open source the recipe. Mm -hmm. And breweries from all over the world wound up picking it up, using the art from his label, and then brewing it themselves to distribute it. Like just great, cool stuff like that. And it's such a neat culture. It's amazing. And, And what makes my office unique is the ideas emanate from the young people in my office. So I'm 26 years old which means I'm not afraid to take advice from teenagers. And so some of the best ideas that I've had have come from teenagers. And, and that's where we feel that our office in government is almost shaking the game up. I talk about the fact that I passed an anti-bullying bill. The idea for that came from a 12-year-old girl who DM'd me on Instagram, Shana Sakai, and said, 
you're my legislator. There's too much bullying in my middle school. And what are you doing about it? And I was still taking it back. And I laughed. And, you know, the tone was serious. But because a 12-year-old girl felt that she was comfortable to reach out to her legislator and felt that her legislator would reach back out to her, we wrote a bill together. That's what we're doing. And, and that's what we're doing in government. But again, uh, you, know, you know, that happens when, when you think outside the box and you say, I want to solicit ideas from everybody. And quite frankly, ideas emanate often from the private sector. And I think government should, should start listening. It's a pretty uh, well-known fact on Long Island, at least, that uh, you happen to have one of the best intern programs maybe ever created. In, <laughs> I know, I mean that, in, in local government. Can you just describe that briefly? Sure. So it's something I pride myself on. And the derivation was, I was an intern when I was young, and there were two jobs available. It was get coffee and wait by the phone to see if it rang. Uh, and I resented that, considering I feel that young people have unlimited potential, but limited opportunity. So I said, if I'm ever going to run for office, I'm going to change it. So in 2017, I ran for legislator. You know, I was 23 years old. I never raised thousands of dollars. I never hired a lawyer. I never took office space. All I knew how to do was get young people together and get them excited around issues. So we had 40 volunteer interns. Average age was 16. That program has grown to this summer. We had 150 interns. Average age was 14. And the two rules are real work for the real world. And number two, I will never ask you to do something I wouldn't do. So we have 12, and the New York Times covered us, and it was amazing. 12-year-old Nicholas Fernandez knocking on a door, talking to voters. 14-year-olds doing policy research. The whole program is led by a 19-year-old. So we are shaking up the game because we believe that, that government has become stale across the board, uh, and it's time for a new generation to claim the mantle of leadership. My friend's daughter interned for you and said it was a fantastic experience. That, that so well is done. the best compliment you can give me. And I'll tell you, I love winning elections. Don't get me wrong. But what, a better feeling is when my students win student government elections after interning. That's a better feeling. And when they, say, when they run for student government, they say, I was inspired by what I learned in this internship and I'm going to run for student government. Uh, that's the best day. So I want to bring it back to Northwell and touch on some of the things that you were just bringing up uh, highlighted during the coronavirus outbreak, which was so devastating in New York. You know, we, we really paid the price for it early on and, and sadly paved the way for a lot of the, the treatments that ultimately became successful. But uh, it's been an incredibly challenging time for healthcare systems uh, during this time. And Northwell seemed to be kind of at the tip of the spear in terms of developing treatment protocols and reducing risks within systems. Can you describe a little bit of what the internal culture was like at the height of the crisis and how just from your own perspective, those frontline workers rose to the challenge. Hero is, is, is the only word that, that can possibly describe the frontline workers. Any citizen remembers how scary that time was. Just the uncertainty drove the fear. Um, but there was a resolve that was unwavering amongst the frontline workers at Northwell, something that I'd never seen before. And, and I was remote. So uh, how we touched it were the internal communications that we would get from senior leaders. And, and again, you know, my, my hero, Michael Dowling, it, it starts with him, how he set the tone. And, and he talks about the fact that not, not only are, are we warriors, I believe, I believe is the word he used, but this is what we do. And, and, and I, I took a lot from this because, you know, I read a lot about FDR and how FDR showed resolve in the face of World War II. And people can, you, they could derive strength from somebody who shows resolve in the presence of fear. But he, he did not look shaken. Like, like he, he was so strong in the sense of uncertainty. And he said, we will get through this. This is what we're, we do. And, and Northwell, you know, again, I've been there for a year and, and 365 days out of that year, I've seen the phrase made for this on the wall. It's the tagline of Northwell. Mm. And he said, we're made for this. And those frontline workers went in and went above and beyond their call to duty, uh, which tells me, number one, 
I hope that we're going to see in about 10 years from now, a massive influx of new young healthcare workers inspired by today's healthcare workers. But two, it, it shows you that, that people will go above and beyond when tested, that, that, that we, should, we should always believe that we can bet on our people. And I think that's what we did at Northwest is, is we bet on our people. And I was never prouder to work for that organization than during this crisis. And, and, and even working remotely, we felt that. You know, we felt the pride in that system. It, it's, it's something like I, like I really can't describe. It was so from a com- communications perspective, what lessons do you think other healthcare systems or any organization in general learned from how Northwell handled this particular crisis? What do you think they can latch on to that's, that's transferable? So I took a lesson as, as a legislator from, from Michael, seeing him, you know, to show so much resolve in, in, in the face of uncertainty. I took that and I said, I'm going to be this for my constituents. And that's why, you know, I was out there whether we were doing food drives, we we're doing PPE supply drives, we were doing mass giveaways. You know, I was out there and, and yes, I'm young. So mom wasn't happy about me being out there, but I, you know, I was more risk averse and, you know, part, part of being young in office. But um, I took that lesson that, that, that if you're the leader of an organization, uh, it is non-negotiable for you to be out front, for you to be on scene and, and to see Michael Dowling, not, not just sitting next to the governor, but to see him in, in hospitals and, and, and to see him in the field. I mean, it was, it was inspiring. So number one is when you're a leader, you have to be out there, especially during a crisis. But number two, communication sets the tone. And so I, I only have two staff members. So, you know, obviously 75,000 employees versus two, but I took the lesson as well in terms of how you communicate with your employees during a crisis. The two people I have working for me are exceptional. And, and I made sure to let them know that, that their contributions were valued, especially during an uncertain time, to show strength as the leader and, and to solicit feedback during that time as well uh, and, and talk about being in this together. I think was really important. And, and three, I, th- I think this is, is the big thing when it comes to communication. <laughs> you have to broadcast strength, but you have to broadcast humility. And I, th- I think that was really important. You know, I opened up to my two staffers and talked about the fact that, you know, I was worried about being out there and, and how it meant I couldn't see my grandparents because, uh, you know, they're, they're elderly and I didn't want to see them. And, and, and so I showed humanity. And I think during the crisis, those leaders who showed humanity in their communications bought more buy-in from people who work for them because they show their humanity. And I think that's an important lesson. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more with Josh about some of his uh, personal endeavors, uh, what it's like being a legislator during this uh, crazy political time, and a little bit more about the intersection between government and corporate social responsibility. Back after this. Is your company looking to scale? Mori Creative Studios is a Diamond HubSpot partner agency that helps organizations leverage HubSpot's platform to achieve sustainable and predictable growth. From video production and inbound content marketing to sales and customer retention strategies, Mori Creative Studios provides comprehensive digital solutions for your company so you can grow for good. Visit moricreative.com to learn more. Welcome back to Grow for Good, where I'm joined by Josh Lafazan, a local Long Island legislator, podcast host, we'll get to that, and corporate social responsibility consultant for Northwell Health. Josh, welcome back to the show. So your other day job as a legislator, when you're not pursuing advanced degrees or fighting crime as a masked (laughs) superhero at night, you get to interact with a number of high profile companies that make an impact. Can you give an example of a great public and private collaboration that you've witnessed or been part of? that really amplifies social responsibility on a large scale? A hundred percent. And too many examples to count. But I think the Boys and Girls Club, you, you know, as, as a private nonprofit, 
the fact that they've worked with so many legislators, but but what they've been able to do working with my office to take care of people in our community has been exceptional. And and the one example I'll give you is after the blackouts. I, I mean, you know, you talk about a one two three punch. So you know, the the economy is in shambles. Uh, COVID nineteen has kept people out of work, and now people don't have any food in their fridge because of blackout. So we did an emergency food distribution with you know with Long Island Cares, but uh, the Boys and Girls Club stepped up and and they, and they helped translate those materials and they helped disseminate those uh, to people all across our district, and and we were able to feed hundreds of people during. A really crucial time. So, you know, utilizing the skill set of of the Boys and Girls Club and and utilizing their reach into the community, I think was a perfect example of of the fact that government should should actively reach out to to nonprofits. They should reach out to the private sector and say, uh, "Here's what I'm doing. Can you help us?" Oftentimes, they'll sit back and they'll wait for a company to say, "Hey, I want to do this event. Would you like to sponsor it?" I think government has to be more energetic and say, "Hey, here's what I want to do. Can you help me?" That, that was just, it was just a perfect example of, of the fact that we wanted to reach this target demographic and they helped us do it just because we asked. It's I, really I love the, the concept of government being more energetic because especially at a, at a local level or a state level, the government's getting pounded on just for money or you know resources and a, and a give me. And the idea of government actually being energized enough to say, hold on, I have a plan too. And can you help me with this? Probably actually makes the constituents feel better, makes the companies feel empowered, and makes everybody feel really great about the initiative. And all you've done is poured your resource and energy toward it without having to break the budget. Period. And so again, so I, I have, you know, a staff of two. And they are I mean super women. I, you know, Rena and Julia, I, I would I'd be nothing without them. Uh, but we talk about the fact that so we're three people representing over eighty thousand people. So what do we got to do? We need help. And and that's that's not a crazy concept. Is that government is limited in the number of its staffers? There's resource limited by law. So so why not reach out and solicit help? Why why is that a controversial topic in 2020? Uh, the private sector, you know, it's not bad. Now I want to make an, an important caveat here. Um, the deals that private and public sectors strike have to work for taxpayers. If we look at you know you know under under county executive Mangano, you look at some of these deals like uh, you know the the bus contract or, or you know or, or the ice rink. Uh, so you know some some of these deals didn't work out. So there needs to be scrutiny. But on the local level in the communities, these companies are already stakeholders in, in your community. And if motivations align, you know, if it helps drive more customers into their doors and it helps my constituents, it's not a bad thing. And, and, and I say that unapologetically. Right. So again, you know, with the Oyster Bay Brewery, you know, or with the, or with Coach Meeting House or, or, or with, you know, the Crescent Club or, or any, anywhere that we do things, if it's going to drive more customers and gain them more awareness, but it's going to help my constituents at the same time, if our motivations are aligned, then let's do it. That's my philosophy. So I'd be remiss if I didn't delve a little bit deeper into politics here because of the highly charged political climate we're living in, just so everybody knows we're taping this how many days before the election? We're a couple of weeks away from uh, whatever is, <laughs> is about to happen. But you and I have a mutual friend mm -hmm. and hero in a New York politician named Tom DiNapoli, yes. who happens to be the uh, New York State Controller. So I won't go into all of the similarities between you guys, but uh, the one thing that you both possess is a unique ability to really transcend tribal identity politics and stay above the fray. Liberals love you. Conservatives love you. People don't talk about you and your party affiliation. They just know you as Josh. How do you think you've managed that? Uh, Tom is, is, is the best teacher I could have asked for. I'll never forget. I was, I was 16 years old and I reached out to the state comptroller and I said, Hey Tom, I'm 16 and I want to run for school board. And he took a meeting with me as a stranger and gave me two hours and, and changed my life. 
and has continued to be a mentor ever since. And, and by the way, it's a big reason why I do the same to these interns, because I'm going to give those kids a meeting because Tom, as Comptroller, gave me that meeting. I can, I can give this kid a meeting. But what he taught me is there's, there's an important and discernible difference between being a politician and being a statesman. It, you know, and, and I believe that being a statesman is important. And that might be anachronistic in today's politics, right? You know, everyone, everyone is, 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 is a fire breather because everyone has to yell at this person or everyone has to blow up at this hearing and go raise money off it. I don't subscribe to that, right? My belief is that it is a privilege to serve in public office. You know, the people who elected me sent me there to work on their behalf. And quite frankly, in, in most districts, half your constituents will be of your party, half will not be. What makes me different is I'm an independent. So when I, you know, when I wrote my, um, the bill about a heroin addiction, I went to Legislator Schaefer, a Republican, because we had served on the Heroin Prevention Task Force to get that bill done. When I wrote the bill about food allergies, I went to Legislator Capel. His grandchildren had food allergies to write that bill, a Republican. So I'm able to work across the aisle, and I believe a big part has to do with my independence. Uh, but I believe my overarching philosophy, and this is the reason I'm able to get it done, is I will never denigrate somebody else for their beliefs. I am at a loss for words as, as to how that, that has remained acceptable in today's politics. If somebody truly believes one way, the way to change hearts and minds is not to denigrate them. It's to see where you can find common ground. The whole political system was set up by the founders to achieve compromise, where you would walk away with not everything you wanted, they would walk away with not everything they wanted, and that would be best for the people. Because I, I read on Twitter about 10 minutes before I got here, democracy requires you know, self-moderation. It, it is sometimes, as Andrew Sullivan says, counterintuitive. It is messy and it is complicated. But it is beautiful if we let it work its course. And I think a new generation who's so disgusted by what we're seeing on TV is going to have to rise up and change the way we, we, change the way we behave as, as elected officials. One of the enlightening things about doing the show where we just target companies with, with profit motives that happen to be doing good in the world is you see that same type of energy in the corporate world that you're talking about in governance or you're talking about just in terms of the general welfare of our communities uh, writ large. In the, in the corporate sector, what's been so amazing about doing this show is that energy is irrespective of whether it comes back to them. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing companies that are mission-driven and recognize that it may not even impact the bottom line. But the happy accident is it mostly does. Mm -hmm. It actually generates some sort of good business karma. And I, I feel like that's what you're reestablishing in the political scene locally here for us and what Tom has done in New York State by rising above the fray like that. And, and, and I am cognizant of the fact that not everyone subscribes to the politics that I do, meaning that there are people, you know, I'm an independent and, and, I, and I caucus with the Democrats. So there are Republicans who don't like that. And there are Democrats who, who don't like that I work with Republicans. And, and I am okay. and I will sleep well at night knowing that I will lose some votes. But as long as I am mission-driven and, and harbor fidelity to what, what I believe is best, which is that we have to bring everyone together around common goals, uh, then 
even if I lose those votes, I'll still be getting the job done. And my hope, and it's worked out so far, is that the majority of people will will elect me. Uh, so, so again, what I see is- What were your numbers in the last election? What we, was the spread? Very lucky to, we won 68 to 32. <laughs> so it was, uh, I, I am, was-, was That's hum- not lucky, Josh. That's a bloodbath. Thank you. That we were, <laughs> we were very humble to, to, to see those numbers, but we worked so hard. And, and I say on every single show, uh, I wouldn't have won were it not for those kids. Uh, those interns are, are you know, I, I don't have any kids. I have a dog, uh, but I, I call those interns. I call them my children. Those are my kids. <laughs> and uh, I wouldn't be here without them. So what are some of your top priorities right now and how have they changed due to the dire health and economic consequences of uh, coronavirus? Sure. So I'm a lawmaker by trade. I love writing policy and I'm not a lawyer. So I, that, that was the learning curve that we spoke about in that first term was learning how to write bills. You know, I had passed a record number of bills as a freshman legislator on issues from disability rights and protecting people with disabilities to helping veterans who were homeless or, or housing insecure, uh, to taking care of people with substance abuse issues, uh, to, to bullying and, and mental health. Uh, when COVID hit, the whole focus of government shifted to constituent service. So I, I went from writing bills to doing food drives, PPE drives, blood drives, flu shots. Uh, I, am a, I am a full-time constituent service director. My hope is uh, that that I can transition back into into lawmaking and and, and start writing bills again. Where um, and and think things. Thank thank goodness the numbers have been low in my community, but people still need help. Uh, so so as as long as people need help, my focus is going to be getting them the help they need. Those food distributions matter. That buys people a week or two of food. That 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 matters. That can bridge the gap for them. Flu shots for those seniors. And you know, we did a mass giveaway. We had a thousand. Cars one zero 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 come to a mask giveaway to get ten free masks so they could go out of their house. And right now, and this is this is the biggest plug I want to give. Rena in my office created the senior shopping program where we have three hundred volunteers who today are shopping for senior citizens who can't leave their homes. So if you're a senior, you need food or medication, you call our office. We pair you with the volunteer. These kids are mostly seventeen and eighteen, and they go to Shoprite. They'll get your items. They'll call you with the number, the, the price. The, the senior will put a check in the mailbox. The person sanitizes the items, drops them at the front door, takes the check. Extraordinary. It is, it is uh, Instacart, but it's contactless and it's a little old school. <laughs> but we're shopping with 300 seniors we're shopping for right now. That's amazing. That is, 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 is what we're doing right now. You're coming into a time, however, that PPP money is running out for small businesses. The enhanced benefits for unemployment have run out. There will be no new stimulus, as we know, yeah. until there is a new administration or a continuation of this administration. And we're coming into winter. Unemployment has been sort of frustratingly high. And at least in, in where we live, we sort of have the, I think what Newsday has called like the, the invisible poor. You know, we have a lot of people that make a good living and are on the poverty line because of the high cost of living yeah. here on Long Island in particular. But this story is is reaching across the country. This is a national phenomenon. What is your biggest concern coming into the winter with the degradation of the benefits and and uh, the economic circumstances? Sure, and and this is one of those times where you know I make no mistake about my ambition to run for higher office. I don't think ambition is is a bad word. I wish I was in Washington right now because it is a tra- it's a travesty. The fact that they, they're you know there there's a chasm between uh, what the Democrats and what the Republicans want and what the president wants, and the fact that they can't get together now of all times at a national emergency. Guarantee you, if they traded places with some of my constituents. <laughs> who that $1,200 made a difference for, or that extra money for unemployment made a difference for. You know, we have too many millionaires in Congress, not enough real people in Congress. And that's a whole other conversation because we need to throw the bums out. And, and, and I believe that. And 
I consider myself a statesman, so that, that's a little off character, but uh, it's it's a throw the bums out type of election because uh, they, they, Washington has failed us and, and we should be outraged. Transitioning into my biggest concern, number one, it's a second wave and we, and we look at Europe and, and the numbers are concerning and I'm reading John Barry's book on the influenza in 1918. The second wave increased in lethality. Then the first wave, that's definitely concerning. The second wave, uh, you know, was more deadly. And, and, and so, you know, as, as politics has infiltrated the conversation around science in this country, and, and that, that's, that's been concerning to me as well, I call it almost COVID fatigue. And I see it with young people who decide that uh, I don't need to wear a mask anymore. Or, you know, COVID's not that big of a deal, so I can have 75 friends over in my basement. Oh, and then go see grandma. Uh, you know, real, real stories. Very concerning for me. So number one uh, is that COVID fatigue, but uh, and, and the health of my constituents. But my my biggest concern is is the small businesses, right? So it's winter. What about those those restaurants uh, that no longer have outdoor dining and have limited capacity? What about the catering industry and the fact that you can't have parties of over fifty people? But it's not just and, and this is where there needs to be a deeper understanding. It's not just uh, the owner of the catering hall. It's the, the people who work in the kitchen. It's the servers. It's the vendors. It's the flower arrangements. It's the lighting. It's, the, it's, it's everything. So all those subcontractors of those businesses, uh, will there be relief for those businesses? Because these are not aristocrats in my district. You know, and this is my issue with Washington is they look at Long Island and they say, we're, we're rich here. Steve Israel used to say 250000 makes you rich in Huntington, West Virginia. Maybe not in Huntington, <laughs> Long Island. Uh, and and, and that's, that's my issue is if Washington doesn't deliver, what is going to happen for the people in my district? That, that's, that's what keeps me up at night. So you have a bachelor's from Cornell, mm-hmm. a master's from Harvard, mm-hmm. and now you're pursuing a doctoral degree from UPenn. Mm-hmm. I have a two-parter here. Uh, one's a statement, one's a question. Sure. Uh, my statement is that... Um, as your friend, I refuse to call you Dr. Lafazin <laughs> when you finish. Uh, my question is, what is wrong with you? You have an hour? Are you not busy enough? You have an hour? <laughs> I, you, I, need to, you need to be on the couch, man. That, you need I, some I, serious therapy. Let me tell you, I am. And on a serious note, I'm an advocate for, for all people to go see a therapist and, and mental health and specifically young boys. If I can pivot real quick. And, and, see how he and, turns everything into a serious issue. And, and, I mean, and, and dominate your show. No, it's, it's the truth. There is this, this toxic masculine pseudo machismo culture among young boys that I'm too tough to talk about my feelings. That's nonsense. Everyone can benefit from therapy. And yes, I'm the son of a therapist, but I'm somebody who has benefited tremendously from my own therapist who, who, who changed my life. So as a, as a plug for mental health, go see someone to talk about your feelings. You won't regret it. To answer your question of what's wrong with me, I don't know. Uh, something, <laughs> because it, I, it, I, I'm in school for one week and, and it, it is impossibly difficult. Uh, <laughs> what will it be in, by the way? So it's called chief learning officer. So it's for corporate executives to best develop their own workforce and employees. So I feel that whether I'm running a government agency or I'm county executive or governor or whatever I am, that, that's a hypothetical, by the way. I don't want anyone to say Understood. I'm running for anything. You know, running uh, a government, can I best develop the people that, that, that work for me? If I'm working at Northwell or in uh, the private sector, can I best help uh, develop a culture and develop the employees working for me? Uh, and, and at the end of the day, I, I believe the, the material is directly applicable, but I love learning. I'm addicted to learning. And so uh, if, if it's three years of just more knowledge, then uh, it's, it's well worth it. So I know you also happen to find uh, 30 minutes of downtime in your schedule at some point during the week, uh, which I assume came at the sacrifice of some sleep. And then you started a podcast. I did. What is it? 
Tell so me about it. It's called Java with Josh. Uh, I can't take credit for the name. Uh, I, I thought I thought it was Coffee with Josh. And Don Clavin actually is the town supervisor in in, in, uh, in Hempstead. Uh, he, he literally said to me, he said, you know, what about Java with Josh instead of Coffee with Josh? It's like three years ago. And so we started doing my town halls in my community. We call them Java with Josh. Before COVID, you go to Mongo's Coffee. Every, every you know, I, I do it every month. I buy it. all my constituents. We give them we give them a fifteen minute window. They come, they buy a coffee, uh, and we help them. And and so I sit at Mongo's for literally like you know eight hours on a Saturday with my staff, uh, and we help people. And we do that every month. And it was Java with Josh. And then the name was so catchy that I said I'm going to do it for my podcast. And the point was, uh, we do we call it pizza and politics in my internship program. So we bring in a guest speaker. Uh, we, I mean, we had the county executive, we had con- members of Congress, we've had, you know, chairman of the Democratic Party. Some amazing speakers come. These kids eat pizza, and you know, for a thirteen-year-old to get FaceTime with a member of Congress is unique, right? And 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 I saw that you could hear a pin drop, not just when the dignitaries came, but here's here's where my perspective changed. When a young entrepreneur walked into the room and said, "I'm 19 years old. I just made a million dollars doing this. I'm 22 years old. I have seven employees working for me." As much as you know, I revere the dignitaries that came in who were 50 and 60, it was, it was those young entrepreneurs who these kids said, I can be that guy or I can be that girl or I see myself in them. So I decided I, I, I'll do an extension of pizza and politics, not just for my interns, but for the world and call it Java with Josh and have some young movers and shakers on there. So we've had Emily Samuel, Syosset grad, uh, who's a celebrity fitness trainer out in Hollywood. We've had Jackie Gansky has 2 million followers on TikTok. Uh, you know, she's in her early 20s. Partha uh, Unova, who I started com- uh, Lasso, it's compression socks for your ankles. It's doing deals with professional athletes. Jesse K, at 20, runs Vibra Media, is working with professional athletes. My brother, and, you know, CEO of Next Gen HQ, uh, and, and working with Dylan Gambardella, his co founder. You know, I'm, I'm laughing because today we had Jake Asman, who started at Syosset Radio in the basement at WKWZ and is on ESPN Houston Radio. So all these young people who were, who were saying, you know what, I was your age like not that long ago. Here's what I did to get here. And so the tagline is everyone has big dreams. But fewer people know how to achieve those dreams. Everyone says, I want to be the first baseman for the New York Yankees. But how do you actually become the first baseman for the New York Yankees? Well, we believe you should ask the first baseman for the New York Yankees. And he'll tell you exactly what he did to get there. My brother calls it reverse engineering. If you want to do something, instead of recreating the wheel, find somebody who did it, ask them how they did it, and copy them. And by the way, the person who did it will tell you how to copy them. Because that's, and and, and just to, to, to give a little advice here, Young people reach out to me all the time. They send me long paragraphs of their plans to run for office, and, and it's so sweet. The, the more effective emails are the ones that are three sentences. Hey, Josh, my name is, you know, my name is Johnny. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a senior at this high school. I want to run for office. Can you tell me how you did it? That is, is a better way to ask for advice than, than to sell me on you, uh, and especially reaching out to a busy person. So just reverse engineer it, uh, and that's what the podcast hopes to do. So in thinking about leadership and some of the themes that we've covered here, uh, I want to go back because you brought him up earlier in the podcast. Can you just describe Northwell CEO Michael Dowling's leadership style? Mm -hmm. Because he is a very uh, interesting, engaging, and unique character. And if you're not in the greater New York region, although you might have seen him on national television during uh, the coronavirus outbreak because he was very prominent. But his leadership style is revered yes. in New York. Uh, can you just describe to the audience a little bit about him? Sure. And again, this is, this is strictly from observation. I was lucky enough to have breakfast with him, the smartest person I've, I've ever been in the presence of. Uh, that was like literally an exhilarating 90 minutes. I ate nothing. I was hooked. Um, he, he is a disarming leader, as you'll find, in terms of being so revered, but, but 
not being afraid to showcase humanity. So he's hilarious. Um, and, and, and something I admire about him is, is he just disarms you. And, and, and again, this is he just has a from, wicked sense of humor. He, he does. Really and, does. And, and again, this is all from observation. You know, I, you know, I'd, I'd love, I joke that, you know, I'd love for president Obama to be my best friend. He's not. So it's all through observation. <laughs> I'd love for Michael Dowling to be my best friend. This is just through observation. You know, you know, he, he, he is so committed to togetherness and inclusivity. So something I love is that we get emails on all holidays of all different religions. It's something I, I never saw before, where it's where it's everyone is shown that they matter from the top. Like that's such such a tone of inclusivity uh, and and togetherness and family. Uh, but again, the, the the biggest thing I'll say, for, you know, from observation is he is somebody who shows courage in the face of adversity. And many leaders during the coronavirus, especially in government. On both sides of the aisle across the country, and this is my frustration, is a lot of people in government saw this as a great vacation. I get to work remote. My staff will work remote. I'm going to kick back on the couch. I saw Michael, again, not just sitting next to the governor. I saw him in the hospitals. I saw him spring into action, and it moved me where I said, you know what? This is something I have to do as a leader. And, and, and so the biggest thing I think he showcases as a leader is that you, you set the tone. And it, it was it was just moving, and and I, I literally was I was sitting in my room, and I saw him, you know, you know, with a bunch of frontline workers, and I said, you know what, I got to get out there because he's out there, uh, and it changed my whole perspective. Well, for more people than maybe even you know, you're the one who's setting the tone right now, and I really really appreciate you being here with us. You're like a shot of B12 right into the vein. <laughs> it's amazing, great stuff. Thank you. Um, is there anything we didn't cover that you want to uh, let everybody know before we go? Uh, two things. One, so I, I, I teach a college class now, so I'm not sure if I told you, but I teach it on Wednesday nights. I give nights. up. I teach. <laughs> no, I give up. I give up. End I, uh, the show. Right I now. teach at Long Island University, so I teach young people in the fall. I teach them how to start a business, but in the spring, I teach them how to run for office. So if there's a young person or old, you know, whoever you are and you want to, you want to run for office, I welcome you to contact me and I'd love to have you audit the class. That's number one. Number two is this show is about me, but you changed my whole life. And I don't even know if you know what I'm talking about right now, where I was 18 years old and you actually helped just, just give me credibility. Uh, and I was named to the Long Island Press's 50 most influential people on Long Island. Yes, you and, are. And at 18, I really felt imposter syndrome right when I got elected that, you know, can I be here? That was the first time where I said, I belong here. And I'm laughing because I'm sure you remember this. My mom, it was a big deal for her. She made me go in the tux that I wore to prom. It was the <laughs> next week and she got it dry clean and made me go to in the tux. And I know you love that. But that, you, you were... There are people who really believed in me from the beginning, but you were one of the first people who helped me believe in myself, uh, and I'll never forget that. So appreciate you. you being here, my man. Thank, thank you, you so much for the time today. Thank you for having me. And as always, we appreciate you tuning in. And if you have suggestions for a guest on the show, feel free to email us at growforgood at moreycreative.com. And if you enjoy the show, like us, rate us, review us wherever you download podcasts. The Grow for Good podcast is produced and distributed by Mori Creative Studios, a Diamond HubSpot partner agency that helps organizations leverage HubSpot to achieve sustainable growth. Grow for Good is a registered trademark of Mori Creative Studios. This is a Mori Creative Studios podcast.